hello, hello. I'm your host, Stephanie Martinez Rivera, and you are listening to the Joy Found Here podcast. I am obsessed with reminding my fellow mamas, queens, badass babes, ladies and girls that perfection is just a word, not a lifestyle. Multitasking is overrated. Comparison is a theft of happiness. And yes, you can put yourself first. Oh, and by the way, for optimum results, you should. I'm a New York girl from a small town, part-time badass, proud mama bear times three. I've seen 60 full turns of the sun. I've learned the importance of how kindness begins with you and your self-talk. Join us each week as we help you navigate both the messy and the magical season of this crazy ride called life. Real stories that remind us to reclaim your power. The sun does come out after the shitstorm. A good cry can be cleansing and We really don't know who sits on top of the mountain of judgment. Sit back, plug in, fill up your cup. This is your time. Remember, you've always had the power. Welcome to Joy Found Here. Hello again, and welcome to another episode of the Joy Found Here podcast. So today we are speaking with Dr. Ashley Funk. She is a licensed psychologist. She's going to do all the talking, believe me. But the very selfish reason I was very interested in her line of work is because we are going to be having our first grandchild this summer in July. And it's been a long time since we've, and we're not raising this baby. He has very good parents, thankfully. But I'm just so curious as to the mindset of raising kids in 2022. So with that, I say, welcome, Ashley. Thank you so much for being here. Yeah. Thank you, Stephanie, for having me today. I'm excited to be here. Okay. So we always start with, tell us about you anywhere you'd like to start. Yeah. So as you said, I'm a licensed psychologist. I have a private practice, Paradise Psychology, here in Fort Worth, Texas. And I did my doctorate in psychology at Wright State University School of Professional Psychology in Dayton, Ohio. I've traveled the country quite a bit, lived in a lot of different states. You know, I've been exposed to a lot of different educational systems through my line of work, seeing how things kind of work differently and Utah, Florida. I'm here now in Texas, did my schooling in Ohio. So things have definitely changed over the years. I started in graduate school in 2009 and now here we are, you know, in 2022 and yeah, things are, things are different. (laughs) Things are very, very different. So your specialty I'll say amongst other things is with children. Mm-hmm. And that's so much to unpack. And we're, maybe we'll save the big part for the elephant in the room of ooh, kids during this time that we're living in right the second. We'll save that for midway. We'll work our way into that. So what you do, you have a practice. So I'm going to come to see you because I'm just having a really hard time establishing boundaries with my child, behavior with my child? Why am I seeking you out? So a lot of my clients come to me because they feel like they've tried everything they can to manage their child's behavior. Whether it's, you know, they've Googled how to do timeout, they've Googled how to do reward systems, 
teachers are coming to them from school saying, your kid's not doing their schoolwork or they're pinching or biting other kids. I was a biter. Go ahead. But not in school. Not in school. <laughs> I was an early biter. As <laughs> Yeah, you know, it's they're kind of coming, feeling exhausted, feeling distressed, saying, I'm about to pull my hair out. I don't know how much more of this I can take. I'm not sure what to do at this point. And, you know, the child is exhibiting any of, you know, numerous behaviors I've had. People come in, it could just be whining, it could be throwing temper tantrums, it could be bedwetting, um, it could be, you know, any sort of behavior that causes some tension or distress to the family dynamics. When a parent comes to you with the child, this is a team effort. This is a family setting, or you'll see the child in full bloom, hopefully, and then you can assess what's happening there, and, and I'm sure you'll have tools for that. But then you got to train the trainer. Yes, the parents. (laughs) Yes. So initially what I typically do is I'll do an intake with the caregiver, caregivers, and the child. Um, I'll get all the information I need to get. I'll meet one-on-one with the child a few times. We kind of have what we call the honeymoon phase. So since I'm a new person and the kid doesn't know me, they tend to act on their best behavior, which is not what I want to see. I want to see. You want to see it in action, right? Um, I have ways of bringing that out, which I always apologize to the parent or caregiver ahead of time. I'm like, okay, hey, today's the uh, inducing frustration in your child day. I'm just so, going to piss them off. So let's see what kind of reaction we get on this one. <laughs> exactly. And, you know, I have games I play with them and I'm not the nice adult that day. I'm going to beat you every single time and cause that frustration, see what happens and then say, oh, you're not getting, you know, prize today. You're not getting a treat. You're not getting anything and meltdown happens. And then I get to see what the parent sees. I actually have a five week program or like a five session program that I do with most parents that kind of goes through the phases of managing the unwanted behavior. So we identify one to three target behaviors that we want to hone in on. And I start working through those steps, those five steps with the parents or caregivers to manage that behavior. And a lot of the clients that come to me see a big change in their children's behavior after that. What do you think the reason for that is? Is it just that our parents today, like everyone, exhausted, lack of time, and it's not easy? Yeah, no, it's not easy. I think especially, you know, with COVID-19, it's put a lot more stress and responsibility on parents. Parents nowadays are wearing all these different hats. They're working from home while their child's also at home, maybe doing online schooling. So they're having to be the parent and at the same time, the employee or the you know business owner. And they're trying to wear all these different hats and do all these different roles simultaneously sometimes. And that is overwhelming for anybody. And to be able to manage that is not an easy task. Right. And especially if you had a nice routine of, you know, if you were one or two working parents and with kids, there's a routine, there's a schedule. Everybody knows where they play their part. And when it came to a screeching halt, 
And then where do you even begin? Like, who's more important? I've got to work, but yet my child who's never learned from a computer screen before, how do we even get online, damn it, and all of that other stuff? And, you know, it's not only is our routine thrown into flux, but kids thrive on routine. Like they thrive on it. So when their routine is upended. Yeah, it definitely, that's why I say it definitely takes a lot. So we're here, we're in the COVID pool. So let's just, because these last two years now are, I mean, how are you even finding the studies say every day, there's so much increased anxiety and depression with kids. And it's almost like, number one, I'm old, I'm 61, but we got to be kids. We got to play. We got to have fun. Yes, we had boundaries. Yes, we had rules. We knew what the consequence was. And nine times out of 10, some kids wanted to visit there. Nope. You learned once and and then you hopefully kept going. But it's a whole different world, which is why we're talking today. Yes. And in my field, we do have some concerns. Research will tell. And unfortunately, maybe too late, but we do wonder, you know, emotionally and social, like communication wise, how is this young generation going to develop? Because so much is lost through a computer screen. You don't have the nonverbals. You don't have the social cues that you have face to face. And when a child's at a critical learning period to learn those dynamics and that social communication and social norms, What happens when you take that away? And are they ever too old to learn? Are there certain ages, like two to three is an important time, five to seven, what are the parameters there? So I would think probably up to like five or six. By the time you're at five or six years old, things are going to start to cement a little bit more. In regards to like social cues and starting to understand those type of social interactions because we start to develop language. So before we don't like something, what's a little kid going to do? They're going to like whack somebody because they don't have the social language or the verbal language to say, stop it. Don't like it. Whereas when you get to about seven or eight years old, that's when kind of that moral development starts to come into play. So seven or eight, you don't do things to not get in trouble you don't do things because you know they're wrong or bad. So you start to have that intrinsic idea of moral development and social norms. So from seven to eight on down, especially I would say five or six on down, that's when it's really important to build those social communication skills and like understanding of nonverbals. So imagine the pre-K four-year-old or the kindergartner that suddenly had to learn from a screen and didn't get carpet time and didn't get everything taught to them via a song. They did, I'm sure, but not in the same, just in the same surroundings as the classroom and the kitchen table isn't really doing it. How do you even keep them sitting there that long to learn that A is for Apple and whatever other song we're going to learn that day or whatever other lesson. I think in regards to attention span, to be honest, you're just not. (laughs) Okay. I like it. I like it. You're just not. Okay. Yeah. I don't know that any four-year-old is going to be able to sit in front of a computer and learn 
without redirection from, you know, like eight or nine in the morning to three o'clock in the afternoon. Honestly, I think that's an unrealistic expectation given the research. No four or five or six-year-old is going to be able to do that consistently. That is crazy. You're absolutely correct. And again, I'm just thinking back on people that I knew that were just going through it. And wow, like that's their first experience of school. I could imagine when they finally got to go in person, like, what is this? You know, it's not kindergarten roundup that you have the summer before and everybody's all together because some people came, some people didn't. And is there, hopefully, well, we don't know. I'm, I'm just being very optimistic as far as a chance to rebound for them to really catch up. Because I think so much, not just on an education level, so much is lost. Yeah, the good news is kids are really resilient. And they have that cognitive flexibility to bounce back. And we see this in other areas. So kids that have like chronic ear infections, a lot of times they have speech development delays. They get ear tubes, they rapidly develop speech and catch up to their peers very quickly. Same with other kids that have maybe like orthopedic issues and they're delayed in like grosser fine motor skills. They get the physical or occupational therapy they need. They catch up very quickly, you know, later in life to their peers. And, you know, the hope is that we'll see the same thing with social skills and emotional skills is the minute they're able to be exposed to their peers and have those social interactions that that development will start to rapidly occur. So that is good news because they are resilient and they can bounce back. So what do you find in your practice as far as let's talk about boundaries. I'm a big boundary person. I I was raised that way. I raised my kids who are adults that way. And it's really important. I think the world does not revolve 24 seven around you, my friend. I love you to death. I absolutely do. But there's other people around that make the unit go. So why are boundaries important? And we go from there. So I'm a big believer that we teach people how to treat us. And part of the way we do that is the boundaries we set and uphold. If you constantly let somebody run over you, that's what you're teaching them. That you'll, you know, enable them, cater to them, do everything for them. That's what they're used to. That's what they're going to expect from you. You've taught them that's who you are and what their your role is in their life. And then once you push back a little, maybe you're just tired, maybe they pick the wrong day and suddenly I used to always say yes because I said, okay, whatever, whatever. And now perhaps they don't recognize the person who might not be at their best coming at them. Yes. And this is what I do a lot with a lot of my adult clients is helping them establish the boundaries that they've lacked for years (laughs) and, you know, preparing them for that pushback and letting them know, like, people don't like change, especially when it benefits them. So your lack of boundaries usually benefits the other person, not you. So when you try to establish those boundaries, they're not going to like it. They're going to push back. They want you to go back to the old you. 
And how long of a process, and I know everybody's different, what's like the quickest rebound you've seen versus, whoa, this one's really taking a little longer than I expected? I think it depends on what stage of change the person's at. You know, if they're really ready to go head first into the deep end and make that change, they would say 90 days to make a habit. Give yourself three months to really establish that. And I think one of the biggest keys is to have an effective boundary. You have to have an effective consequence. Ah, let's go. Aha, uh-huh. here we go. Yeah. So if you don't have an effective consequence that you're willing to go through, if that person breaches the boundary, well, then you don't have a boundary. And not for anything, the little person learns that rather quickly. Oh, yes. Because <laughs> they're also very smart, resilient slash very smart. Do you find that the adults have either a harder time or equal hard because now they have to change also? And they've done this behavior for a while, for whatever the reason. We are, a lot of people by nature, people pleasers. We don't want our kids to be sad or upset. I don't know where that whole concept came from because it's part of real life, my friend. It's we, Unless you're going to bubble wrap them, introduce them to life. So when boundaries are broken... What are some effective consequences? And timeout, it was AKA you're punished or grounded back in my day, different verbiage, same idea. So when the consequence is now here, now what? So I'm going to give you the favorite psychologist answer. (laughs) It depends. (laughs) You are really just nailing I know. The questions are so broad. I'm like, yeah, but. Yeah. So here's the thing about consequences is the consequence isn't a good consequence for you. It has to be a good consequence for the person that you're setting the boundary with. So you have to sit and think, you know, if you're setting a boundary with your child, what is a consequence that's meaningful for them? They have like a favorite toy that, you know, if you're going to take that toy away, like, yeah, that's a good consequence. If timeout is something that's effective, that's effective. It could be anything or everything. It could just be whatever is effective. You know, even with teenagers, big one is take away their cell phone, block their social media. I know people that actually disconnect the Wi-Fi and then the world comes to an end and then it's over. And it's interesting that you say that because my kids are... 36, 32, and soon to be 26. And we didn't have any of the amount of electronic distraction that is there now. They luckily were able to play and be with friends. And did they do video games? They did. It wasn't till four in the morning or anything like that. But when something didn't happen, as I would always say, the truth will always set you free. So come clean because I already know you did it. Yes, it was always very child-specific to what was important to them. And way back when AOL first started with Messenger, AIM. Yeah, AOL and Messenger. Yep. And my daughter was in middle school, and they were not allowed to 
make a profile. They were not allowed to put their name because these no, they didn't understand World Wide Web. I'm like, World Wide Web, it's not just for your friends. Everybody can see this. So I find out that she did make a profile and, you know, here's her name. Here's her hometown. Here's what school she goes to. Okay, next time include the phone number for everyone to drive up. And so I'm picking them up from a end of year dance. And I was driving the group of them to the next stop. And I'm like, I'm not going to not pick them up. But my daughter is not going to the next street. She's not going to the next affair because this is bullshit. She knew like she knew like she knew. So we get in the car And uh, hey, how was the dance? Great, great. Listen, ladies, I have some really bad news. You know, she's not going to go with you. Like we've got something going on right now at home and she's just going to come home with me. So now she's panicked. She's like, everything's fine. Don't worry. Don't worry. Girls, go have a good time. Let me drop you off at Applebee's. Okay. Bye-bye. And now in the car. Well, I'm like, I don't know. She's like, what? What's going on? I'm like, well, as soon as we get home, I want to show you something. So I showed her the computer. I'm like, no. And, you know, now you're missing a lot of fun with your friends. And it's, you know, the end of school. It's this, I, you know, cry. I'm the worst person ever. I am. Okay. All right. And guess what? She didn't do it again. But did I want to ruin her good time? No. Was I pissed off? Shit. Yeah, I was. Absolutely. And it could have just gone on and on if you ignore it to something worse. You know, it is one of those things with a lot of like parents and caregivers, there is kind of this preparation phase of saying, you know, your child's probably going to say some things to you. You're not going to like, Oh, mm -hmm. like you said, like you're like the worst. I hate you is another one. Okay. All right. We still love you. We do. We're not happy right now, but we do still love you. There's a negotiation or I promise I'll never do it again. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. (laughs) And then even especially with younger children, there's the behavior burst. And I always tell parents, because this is what happens a lot. They'll come in and be like, well, we tried timeout. We tried, you know, taking toys away. We tried doing this and it didn't work. Things got worse. And I'm like, here's the thing, though. When things get worse, that's usually when you know you're doing it right. Double down and stay amp it up to try to get you to stop disciplining them. And you just have to wait it out. (laughs) Yeah. Well, they're always pushing the boundary just to see where the boundary is. Like how much pushback will I get? Oh, she didn't like that at all. Okay. Let me not go that far next time. Because again, they're smart, calculating individuals. They are. (laughs) Yeah. Kids know and understand way more than you realize. I think what I'm hearing also is consistency that comes along with structure. It gives them stability. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yes. So consistency is extremely important. One day, if you have a target behavior, say it's, say it's not doing their schoolwork. So if one day they don't do their schoolwork, you take away the cell phone. And then the next day they don't do their schoolwork and you let them have their cell phone back. That's sending them mixed messages. Then they start to say, well, I don't know when I'm going to get in trouble, when I'm not going to get in trouble. Or all the dice, it might be worth it. Yeah. And so you have to be consistent with that. If you really want the behavior to stop, you have to be consistent following through with the consequence. Mm. And I think as I got older, I too went through this. 
I had my daughters when I was in my 20s and didn't really, I want to say, listen to them too much. We established we're in charge, we're the parents, we're this, we're that. Seven years later, I'm in my 30s, I have my son. We're older. And yes, we're tired. We are. We, you know, like, what made us think we can have another? And with God's sense of humor comes a mouth that just doesn't stop, a constant negotiator from the time the kid could start to talk. But at the same time, and I don't know if it was maybe just because I was older, I really started to listen to him at a young age because he made valid points. And I feel I didn't give that opportunity to my girls when they were at that young age, but I definitely listened to him. And he still, he makes them in the middle of an argument and you want to be right so badly, but then he makes a valid point. And, you know, there is these different parenting styles and there is kind of, you know, this authoritarian parenting style that's kind of like, do it because I'm your parent and I told you so. So just listen to me or else. Um, and then you have like the authoritative style, which is more, I'm going to sit down. I'm going to tell you what you did wrong. I'm going to tell you why it was wrong. And we're going to talk about it. And a lot of times, you know, you can listen to your child and yes, they're going to make some valid points. But at the end of the day, you are the parent. You are the decision maker. You hold the responsibility for safety, security, et cetera. I'm glad you said that because that was eventually my my answer. I'm like, all right, I'm playing the mom card now. Listen, I hear exactly what you're saying. And these are all really valid. However, here's my job. My job, keep you safe. That's my job. And I'm going to do my job today. So here's my mom card. And let me know, like, when you're older, different story. Right now. Not so much. It wasn't that easy. It wasn't. There was a lot of back and forth. And you get tired of a verbal banter, but we're each getting something out of that. And, you know, sometimes it is um, learning when that banter is productive and when it's not productive and just being like, all right, enough, shutting it down. We're done. (laughs) And that's time. Okay, we're done here. So I think sometimes communication can go a little too far. And what I mean by this really is kids today, little kids are like bombarded with a thousand decisions they have to make because their parents are like, well, do you want this one or do you want that one? Do you want this bowl or do you want this spoon? What about this cup? And I'm like, holy crap, give them a cup, give them a bowl. Here's a spoon. Ask them other, you know, ask them what flavor ice cream later, but get the basics. Like, Who's in charge? That part just drives me crazy. I'm sorry for that little rant, but. I think, you know, making sure the stimulation doesn't become overstimulation and having a young child that has the ability to have like free will and make decisions is one thing, but you have to make sure that there's still kind of that hierarchy. Like there is always going to be a power hierarchy and you want to make sure that the children are not at the same level as the parent or caregiver because you're going to run into some issues there, especially when the child gets older. Well, and even just at the younger state as well, sometimes I see there are instances where who's running that family? The kids are dictating what's happening. Sometimes I see with families that come in, there has to be a discussion occasionally. Are you a parent or are you trying to be a friend? Ah, let's go. Yes. 
And, you know, in other instances, sometimes there are children who become parentified or adultified and they have to assume that role because the parent is maybe incapacitated or there's something going on mental health wise where they cannot assume some of the roles they would typically assume. That definitely happens. However, with that third child of mine, I was also guilty and accused many times of, especially as he was getting older, stop being his friend. Cause I would, I would listen. I'm like, Oh, you know, maybe he is making sense. And then I needed someone to remember. Okay. That's fine. If you're his friend, but what would his mother say? And I say, Oh, okay. All right. Well then I would do this. You need that constant reminder. Yeah. And I think, you know, a good Jodger, good thing to think about is, is this something I would talk to, you know, my girlfriends about if it is, probably shouldn't be having those discussions with your child. <laughs> you know, yes. sometimes I have parents, you know, that occasionally will come in or the child will come in and be like, oh yeah, like we watched this on the news or we talked about this. And I was like, you're held. And sometimes, you know, those boundaries are just not there and it's understanding, you know, development and what is appropriate and not appropriate for a child to be exposed to, because that can also add undue responsibility and stress to that child for information that they don't necessarily need to be exposed to. Further on that point, do you find that when there's more than one child in the house, so now we have the older siblings, and in my case, I had years of 10 and 7 to the young one, so there were always different age groups around, or if you just happen to have like every two years, well, the older one gets to do this. I'm a baby. I'm the baby in my family. And believe me, I did a lot of observing and I watched what worked for the others. I'm like, well, that was stupid. I would never ask that way. Here's what you do. Or I just wouldn't ask. I would just do it. Maybe they'll notice. Maybe they won't. 50-50 chance. But when you have the older siblings there, that has to play. And I know for me, if you asked all three of us, we would be raised by in different households. And yet we weren't because of where we were when our parents had us. You know, it's funny you say that because my sister is about eight years older than me. Okay. All right. So I definitely saw things and learned things from her and what she did and was like, oh, not making that mistake. I would definitely say we were parented very differently as well. And when she went off to college, I was basically an only child. And that was my son because the girls were in school and, and it was just him and he had us. And, you know, I was like, wow, this is really interesting how this all played out. But yeah, I know that with Greg, especially being the youngest in his group, all of his friends, they were all oldest. So we were the older parents in kindergarten, et cetera. So we, you know, this is, again, raised by wolves, he was. We're like, oh, yeah, this is what's going to happen. Been down this road and and all of his friends, this is the first kid in school. And I'm like, oh, just watch. Yeah. Nope. They shouldn't have a cell phone when they're in sixth grade. Nope. Nope. But everybody else has one. I'm like, that's good news. Good news. Listen, if you ever have to call me, use one of their phones. You're not getting one. You would think there'd be like some sort of like trend or like some typical way that things play out. And it used to be like, oh, you know, the oldest child is always going to be the caretaker. Yeah, I don't necessarily see that. It varies family to family. And usually, you know, sometimes I'll see like the youngest is 
obviously the older siblings are role models for the younger siblings. And it is absolutely normal for me to see the younger sibling come in and the parents are like, oh, they picked this up from their older sibling. (laughs) And now we need to work on both of them. So now we have two patients, not just one. Absolutely. (laughs) Sometimes it works out great though, because sometimes I'll meet with the older sibling and you kind of play into that and be like, you're the teacher. You're the role model. Kids love that. They love teaching their younger siblings how to do things the right way and how to like be a good role model. Kids eat that up. And if you can play into it, play into it. Because to be able to set that up and, you know, play into that, I'm a good big brother. I'm a good big sister. They love that. Kids love praise. So it's not all about disciplining. It's also about finding the good and noticing the good behavior and reporting that too. I love that statement. And I don't know why I keep talking about the one kid, but when the younger one was in kindergarten, his teacher would always write a note. It could either be a good note or a bad note. And she would always, when she was writing a note home, she would call the the child to the desk and she would write it. She would say out loud what she was writing. If it was, you know, Greg can't wear those sneakers to school anymore. They're distracting. Got that one. Thank you. But I also got the dear Mrs. Rivera. I just wanted to let you know, Gregory, you know, was such a help today. So she was such a great proponent and taught me because I really didn't ever think about it prior to that because I certainly didn't have it in my life. And that was catch them doing something good Mm -hmm. because it's easy to catch them doing something bad, but you totally throw them off course when you catch them doing something good. And, you know, keep in mind, attention is attention, whether it's good attention or bad attention, attention is attention. So you'd rather give your child attention for positive behavior than attention for negative behavior. Instead of just yelling their name, well, their name is being called. That's all that matters. Who cares if she's yelling at me or if she's saying, wow, I'm so proud. Doesn't matter. Don't hear that part. She called my name. That is, oh my goodness, that is so, so true. So it's just so interesting. As I said earlier, where my daughter's expecting a a little boy this summer and we're thrilled to, of course, we're going to be the spoilers because we can finally, we're like, okay, no rules. Here you go. Oh, sure. You can go out of structure. I'm a big ice cream for before dinner. If you want it for breakfast, knock yourself out. Eventually you're going to eat. I don't care what order you eat it in, but I worry the amount of stimulation, I say from electronics, from did the iPads re- and the phones replace what people were always afraid that TV was? How do kids stay social and how do they get to be kids? I think as we're starting to kind of hopefully come out of COVID-19, we'll come back to a little bit of normalcy. I know that there's a lot of like Facebook groups and meetups for, you know, parents to have play dates and things like that. I do think that limiting the use of electronics is a positive. You don't want to rely on electronics as a babysitter. And I see that a lot and I get it, especially out in public. We have a tendency to go out and judge and shame parents. And I don't think that's good. 
mom shaming, dad shaming, parent shaming, caregiver shaming. That is not something that any of us should be doing because we're not in that person's shoes. We don't know how difficult it is. We don't know what they're going through. Why do it? It's easy to go to the restaurant and say, oh my gosh, look at that parent. They just shoved an iPad in that kid's face. Well, if they shove the iPad in the kid's face to keep them quiet during a nice dinner. You're welcome. Yeah. I mean, you'd be, you'd also be complaining if they took the iPad away and the kid was screaming. <laughs> indeed. Indeed. So it is, you know, finding that balance and making sure you have other activities for them to do that they can use their imagination and have some creativity, whether it's, especially for young children, like mega blocks are a big one, especially for young, young children, tummy time, like we're talking more like infancy into toddlerhood, tummy time is extremely important for development is making sure they have tummy time. Why so important? So it's a lot of like the development. So it's for stimulation because you want young children to have stimulation And it also helps develop some of the muscles and coordination that they're going to need for like gross motor and development, because that's when that all starts to occur. And it's also stimulation and it's great for bonding with the mother and father or the mother, mother, father, father, you know, parents in general. And I do find there's so many guys out there, like you can just Google tummy time and there's going to be so much that comes up. (laughs) It's like almost overwhelming. And when that infant, when you first put him on the belly... And that infant's like, what in the world is this? Absolutely (laughs) not happening today. Get me off of my belly because I can't move. And I'm just going to cry incessantly. So as that new parent, because you forgot that they sent you home with the baby and there's no instruction book and you're like, I don't know. Yes, the tummy time is supposed to be a thing. But if the baby's crying, we don't want the baby to cry. To an extent. Okay. So I think that especially first time parents sometimes make this mistake and it is our instinct to not want our child to be upset. You know, we hear our baby cry. Oh no, they're crying. I need to go fix whatever the problem is. Yes and no. Sometimes you want your child to cry and you want them to develop the ability to self-soothe. So if you're always going and picking them up and fixing whatever the problem is, you're taking away that opportunity for your child to develop the ability to self-soothe. So really you're doing more damage than good at that point. These are the children that as they get older have really low distress tolerances, meaning something little happens and they can't handle it. They get really angry, they get irritated, they get sad, they start to scream, they start to cry because they have not developed that ability to soothe themselves and comfort themselves. Wow. So important. And then are there some phrases that work, let's say in toddlers, because they usually do have a, a zero to 50 gauge of like, let me just spin it or get those wheels off the track. Are there any good reminders that you would say as the parent, like, okay, when this happens, look at the sun. Oh, did you see that bird? You know, does distraction work or is teaching them at that young age? Look, oh, I cry too. Yeah, no, I'd be mad Mm -hmm. also, but we're going to keep moving. I've seen this recent trend of not showing like quote unquote, bad emotions in front of young children, (laughs) like they don't exist. 
everything. Like, enough already, people. Come on. I know. There's so many schools. There's so many camps on this side or that. There are. And and yet you have a thriving practice because there's got to be a happy medium. I think that sometimes the whole authoritative figure, the the leader, the, the teacher, the parent, we just, some people like lost their role and decided that these infants and these toddlers and these little kids are going to be equals. Yeah. And I, I think a lot of it comes from so much shaming. I think that the whole shaming of parents has just exploded. And I think, you know, social media has a big role in that. You know, we have all these moms groups and things like that, and they are just a breathing for shaming. The moms groups have a lot to say. Yeah. And it is harmful. I think that shaming someone who's doing the best they can with what they have is harmful. Like you said, you know, no child comes with an instruction manual. That's just not what parenting is. And a lot of the time, are there certain things that you can do that are innately harmful to a child? Yes, of course there are. Many of them are not legal anymore. But there are a lot of things that you can do to foster positive social communication, positive emotional coping. Keep in mind that as the adult in the household, you are also a role model for your child. Your child is learning from you. So they learn by viewing you showing your emotions and coping well with them. So if you cry, that's fine. Talk to your child in a developmentally appropriate way. If you're angry, cope with it in an appropriate manner. If your child show, like watches you show those emotions and deal with them in a way that's appropriate, they're going to do what you do. I like it. So what do we see for the rest of 2022? What do you, uh, what do you think is going to, how it's going to play out? I wish I could say. <laughs> I'm I'm afraid I'm afraid to be optimistic and jinx everything. <laughs> My hope is that we get closer to normalcy. I'm starting to see a little bit of it. I know in my neighborhood we're doing more social events. Kids are starting to get back into clubs and organizations. I can't wait till I start hearing some of those things come back. Um especially now that we're getting close to summer. Kids need things to do. <laughs> right. I was going to say, and this episode will be coming probably, they'll be listening to this at the end of June. So for us in New York, school will just be getting out. I think you guys get out earlier. When does school end in Texas? It it might end a little, a little earlier, right? So, you know, and then it's the summer and keeping kids busy. Yes. And... And I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad. And, and again, I don't mean to label anything good, bad, but too much uh, or or too little. Of it. We're always just looking for that happy medium. So let's say you have kids that are very involved. An easy one is going to be sports. And they might, from an early age, go in a higher level and let's go on club. Let's go on travel. Let's do this. And that's great, fantastic but then they're also sometimes overscheduled or 
you get picked up from school, come on, hurry up. Here's, you know, either here's some food or here's a drive through and take your water and don't forget your equipment. And then you got to do your homework in the car and blah, 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 blah. I wouldn't do it at any age. And, you know, we're asking eight, nine, 10 year olds to deal with all of that. Yes. And I, I think it's important to check in with yourself as the adult and say, are you stressed out getting them from A to B? Because if you're stressed out, imagine how your child feels. And keeping in mind that children, especially young children, have a tendency to show anxiety differently than adults. I'm listening. (laughs) Yeah. So usually it comes out as irritable or behavioral outbursts. So if they're getting mad easier, they're snapping at you, or it sometimes even comes out like somatically. So if they're complaining of tummy aches or headaches a lot, it might be anxiety. Mm-hmm. And that's something, you know, to tune into. And if you think that, well, hopefully your child could be courageous enough to be verbal and say, listen, I'm feeling a little this, I'm feeling a little that. Nine times out of 10, they're going to be some closed clams. And then you have to put your detective hat on. So if you suspect that there is some anxiety or something going on, first of all, what kind, you you named some signs to look at. And then is there something that as parents, we can try to open dialogue to try to I say assess, but I'll say assess as amateurs. We're not trained professionals like you, but we know our kids the best. I do think the big thing is to let your child know that you're always going to be there and that your child is not going to disappoint you. They're not going to upset you. Because the number one reason I typically see children not communicate with their parent is they don't want to upset them. They don't want to disappoint them. They don't want to make them angry. Because kids are people pleasers too. And it's so true. And I have had conversation with some little people and they've said that, you know, they're like, I know I really don't want, I really don't like playing, you know, this sport or that sport, but I know, you know, my mom would be disappointed if I like, Ooh, that's, that's a lot. I said, how do you know that? Did you ever ask her if she would be disappointed? Like, that's a really big assumption. I would ask her. And then if she is, it's still okay. She, you know, at the end of the day, she wants you to be happy. But so many of kids, I think, carry that and we don't realize. We're busy. We don't realize. We just assume, you know, they keep doing it. They must be having fun. They look like they're having fun. Children are good at hiding things just as much as we are as adults. Those damn people pleasers are everywhere. They are everywhere. So let's leave this with, I'm going to leave it as general because you have to be general as just some good advice. Let's go. If you had like a room full of parents, kids of all ages, something just like, Hey guys, it's not that it's really easy, but it's helpful. If you, what, what would you say to parents? It is helpful. If you catch your child being good before you catch them being bad. One more time, please, because it needs to be repeated. We don't say it enough. It is helpful if you catch your child being good before you catch them being bad. And then for kids, kids, 
hopefully some, maybe some listen if their moms have it on in the car, if their dads have it on in the car or what have you, what would we say to them? Speak up. Mm. Speak up. Yeah. Speak up. Again, another great point. Perhaps that depends on, as I told you earlier, like I know I did not give voice to my daughters, but it's very different now. And and a lot is different. And I think people are different and parenting styles are different. So that is, I think, a very, very good sound piece of advice. And maybe even as parents encourage your children to speak up. And I think, you know, that's important in every context. Oh my goodness. Absolutely love it, Ashley. This has been wonderful. Thank you. So where can we find you on social? Where can we, where can we find you? Yeah. So um, you can find me on Facebook and on Instagram at Paradise Psychology, P-L-L-C. You can also enter Paradise Psychology and Google and my Google business profile will pop up and you can call me, email me, look at my psychology today profile under Ashley Funk. Um, you can find me all over. <laughs> I love it. And then also a quick side question is, do you only see clients in person or do you zoom and tell a doc and do those things? Yeah. So um, I am licensed in the state of Texas. So my clients have to be physically in the state of Texas, but I do see in person and I do also offer telehealth. I love it. Well, thank you again. It has been very enlightening. I'm very excited. I can't wait to see what this little munchkin is going to be when he arrives in, in the summer. And I can't wait to see our kids' parent. And, and again, we get the easy job of just loving them. <laughs> it's up to you guys. We already did it. Thank you. Thank you. And thank you everybody for listening to another episode. Love, love your comments made me cry as always, because I'm, I'm a weeper. You're going to hear us on Apple. You're going to hear us on Spotify, on iHeart, anywhere you listen to your pods. The website, I know this one's going to get some comments and I definitely want to hear them. And really, let's start the convo at joyfoundhere.com. Until next time, thanks again and be well. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of the Joy Found Here podcast. If you've enjoyed what you've heard today, please share it with a friend. And of course, if you haven't already done so, subscribe, rate, and review the show on your favorite podcast player. Don't forget to head over to joyfoundhere.com for any questions, comments, and feedback. Until next week, keep your head up and your crown straight. You've got this.